Welcome to episode 229 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That hasn't actually been my experience, if that is, I'm the old dog we're talking about. I'm 46 years old. My friend Dorothy Wilhelm, who recently turned 87, would probably consider me young. From the perspective of my kiddos, ages three and five, I'm definitely old. However you cut it, I've been on this earth a while and I've formed some strong habits. About 10 years ago, I made a big decision and quit caffeine cold turkey to improve my blood pressure. I had been drinking obscene amounts of caffeine, including four shot Americanos, Diet Coke by the liter, and when I was being thrifty, a pound of cold brew a week made it home. One of the reasons I was able to kick the habit was I changed up my routine. Taking Excedrin migraine helped with the physical symptoms of caffeine withdrawal. What was harder was the emotional connection I had to my caffeine addict identity. A few years ago, I started drinking seltzer after spending a lifetime detesting the taste. I now drink several pints of homemade seltzer with fresh lime throughout the day and have a 20-pound tank of CO2 so I can refill my soda stream canister for a fraction of retail. And 18 months ago, I started running after a lifetime of saying I'd play dead if chased and have since run a 5K every month. Having lived through these significant changes, it has made it a wee bit easier to consider changing a different habit. All last year, my wife was sharing how amazing it was to listen to audiobooks and encouraging me to do the same since I was always complaining that I didn't have time to read. She racked up an impressive 105 books in 2020. I resisted because I was overworked and hooked on the habit of watching crappy TV whenever I had even a moment of downtime. With a newly designed and less packed schedule in 2021, I ran out of excuses right at the end of December and started reading Barack Obama's newest book, which created a new habit. I actually read nine books by January 9th, 2021. Yeah, you heard that right. I stopped reaching for Netflix and started building in time to listen at 2x or even 3x. Obama's pretty slow the way he speaks to all the books I had on my someday reading list. Once I made the decision, it it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. I just needed to remind myself that I'd made significant lifestyle habit changes in the past, and I did have what it takes to make this one too. Your challenge this week. It's now a few weeks into 2021, and you may be having some difficulty keeping up with your New Year's resolutions. Make a list of all the habits you've already changed for the better in your lifetime. Did you quit smoking? Stop biting your nails, switch to drinking tea. Now, you didn't so much break a bad habit as you changed it for a better one, right? Quote, you can't extinguish a bad habit, you can only change it, says Charles Doug in The Power of Habit. So, he says, keep the old cue and deliver the old reward, but insert a new routine. It's time to try on a new identity, one that does insert whatever new habit you're working on. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. 
Today's guest is passionate about promoting gender equality within the workplace, empowering women to express confidence, and helping them build a winning career game plan. After experiencing many career pivots points of her own, she now is focused on promoting diversity and inclusion in the workplace as a keynote speaker and executive coach. She holds an MBA from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, is a certified master coach, is a certified unconscious bias trainer. She's a TEDx speaker, host of the Next Pivot Point podcast, and author of three books, Pivot Point, How to Build a Winning Career Game Plan, One, How Male Allies Support Women for Gender Equality, and Lead Like an Ally, A Journey Through Corporate America with Strategies to Facilitate Inclusion. Please join me in welcoming Julie Kratz. Thanks for having me. Julie, thanks so much for joining us from your home in Indiana. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Oh, my corporate America journey started in the early 2000s and I will never forget my first day in the corporate world surrounded at a table with 10 white men and myself. <laughs> and I remember thinking, huh, this isn't as diverse as I thought it was going to be. Uh, but truly from that seat and that table that day, I was fortunate to be a part of a leadership rotational program that was really popular back then and get different experiences and have a chance to be a people leader early in my career. And what I realized is it really wasn't the positional authority that got people to follow you, right? Having manager in my title and supervisor didn't mean that people were going to do what I asked them to do or like doing what I asked them to do. Uh, but it was really influence uh, that you gained in getting people to buy into your vision and getting to know them as human beings and walking around and asking them about their weekends and their kids and the things that they cared about. Uh, and that was something I was really fortunate to get that lesson in the trenches early in my career uh, and still carry forward those messages in, in the books I write and the things I talk about today. All right. So I, I love this picture that you just painted of you being in a room with no one that looked like you, which I think a lot of women listening have, if they've reached any kind of upper management position or opportunities to be in those rooms, will will like recognize that for themselves as a, as a, as a clear memory or current reality. And then I also love this piece that you said about influence and getting to know them as human beings that really resonates with me. I remember I had a job for a long time in fundraising and nonprofit development, and I always made an effort, no matter what place I work to get to know the program staff, because they're the ones who were doing the work. And it surprised me how, how little interaction there was between those two departments and when I needed something from the program staff, again, I wasn't their supervisor, I wasn't a manager of them, but when I needed some sort of data point or a story to tell, you know, something that we were doing or photograph of some, you know, our mission in action, I got such great support and responsiveness, you know, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't do it for that reason, but it absolutely ended up benefiting me later on mm -hmm. because we knew each other. So it's kind of what you're saying, like getting to know people I guess, could lead to that sort of informal leadership and it will help you even if you have a formal title. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Oh, absolutely. I think now more than ever, we want to connect. We want a sense of belonging in, in the workplace. And how do you build connection and belonging 
through getting to know each other, through being a bit vulnerable, through asking for help, through helping others. And there's just a deep primal human need for that. And, and too often, and especially in the workplace, I think we've tried to segment our lives. You know, there's work and then there's life and there's no in between. Certainly, uh, we've learned <laughs> through all of this that that's integrated and it always has been too. So bringing your full human self to the workplace is something I'm really passionate about helping organizations understand how to do that because it, it's not as easy. You know, not everybody intuitively knows, Robbie, what you just said to get to know people <laughs> and get to know people that you may not directly be working with or managing or supervising but they're a part of the process and you want their engagement so that you get to know each other and that you can support each other. And the only way to do that is through connection and forming connection. Yeah. You know, you, you said, you know, we're getting to know in this current situation, like the whole work life thing. And I've heard the phrase, you know, it's not that we work from home it's that we live at work and <laughs> it really, it does. I mean, I've been working from home for a while and it's interesting how, even though my situation didn't change as far as like physically where I did my work, I feel like the world shifted. And even I feel like it's even more so everything's happening all the time. Like the delineation of a weekend really kind of blurred slash went away for a lot of folks. And I think before there was more of an expectation that, oh, we pause on the weekend. <laughs> and now everyone's just working kind of all the time and trying to fit in childcare and life and, you know, pet care. And so they're working different hours. And I, I think, like, I wonder how much this will continue. Um, and yet you, what you're talking about is still so crucial for people feeling like they, they have a connection. They feel like they belong. I'm actually curious though, Julie, you, you talked when I said, you know, leadership, you, you started talking about your time in corporate America. And I have a feeling that your story starts a lot earlier than that. So I'm kind of curious, what were you like as a kid? You know, where, you know, who's, who's Julie on the playground? You know, were you the kind of kid who ran for school in an office in school, like, um, or some position in student government, or were you organizing kids in the playground? Or were you kind of quietly watching the scene unfold? Oh, that's so interesting. And what a great question to get to know somebody as a human, to ask them about their childhood experiences and who they were. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I talk a lot with people about purpose and finding your purpose in life. And as a kid, I mean, my story really goes back to this eight-year-old kid that I, I will never forget this. It's not a my babysitter's house. I was raised by a single mom, the strongest person I've ever met in the whole world. And she um, had sent me the babysitter that day. And I remember the kids telling this joke, kind of like a riddle about, and, and listeners, you might remember this, uh, about a child goes to the hospital and is operated on, you know, and they find out that the surgeon is their parent. How could that be when his, you know, dad is with them? And it, the whole joke is, it's not a joke, really. It's, it's a riddle. Uh, that there's no way that the surgeon could be a woman, you know, in your mind, it kind of defies that logic. And I remember as this eight-year-old girl going, that is not right. Like that is not fair. How could the doctor not be a woman? I can't imagine a world where a woman can't do anything that a man could do. So this is a stark realization uh, and this really, I think, ignited this passion that I've carried through in my life so much so that... You know, I studied women's studies in college and um, really, you know, I do a lot of work with women and overall diversity now, but I remember this moment in my early twenties when I decided to do the corporate thing. And I remember my mom saying, I don't know why you're doing this. Like, what, what is, why are you doing this? Because your real purpose is to help women. 
remember thinking like, you don't get to do that for a living. Like that's not real. What is she thinking? You know, fantasy land here. And uh, good old Nancy was right. And I still hear those words in my mind. I lost my mother um, 15 years ago, actually. And so thankful. I think in all the things that I reflect on now and through my childhood is our greatest sources of privilege are really our parents having somebody that really deeply cares about you and knows you and says things like the things she would say to me as a kid to validate who I was and encourage me to pursue my passion and purpose and call me out when I was not doing it right. (laughs) So great. This, uh, the riddle that you described, I feel like everyone you know, I wonder if the, I wonder if it's like everyone of a certain age and older because that riddle wouldn't make sense to you know a kid who's eight today, like that wouldn't be a riddle. So it didn't which make is sense awesome. to me back in 1990 either. Yeah, <laughs> but I, but it is sort of interesting how like even more evolved this whole has been. But but for you in a culture at the time that thought that was a riddle because you know how could how could it be the mom? You felt the injustice of that and. Um, it, it sounds like you didn't just feel the injustice, but when you voiced it, um, your mother recognized it in you and nurtured it a little bit so that you weren't left alone in your thinking, that's outrageous. How could that be? And for her to then reflect back your true purpose in life, you know, as you're making this just shift into corporate America, I think was interesting for her, obviously, to hold that, that mirror up to you. But also she missed that you could have a great impact in corporate America on the like well-being of women, which is clearly how you sort of wove it all together. But when you were, say, 12 years old, what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? Like, did you have a sense (laughs) that this was all going to, you know, be a thing? Or like, was there some other passion that you were leading towards? Oh, you remember those time capsules we used to do as kids? (laughs) And so you would write in there what you wanted to be when you grew up in your favorite candy bar and all sorts of miscellaneous information. Yeah, I remember doing that in fifth grade. So close to like the 12 year old time frame. And in that time capsule, it said that I wanted to be a zoologist. (laughs) You know, like most kids, you like animals. So you're like, I want to work at a zoo, the animals. Didn't end up enjoying science so much. So that was a problem for that career path, which I quickly discovered in middle school and certainly in biology class. However, you know, I think like most passions and purposes, and, you know, it's hard to challenge kids to even know, have the wherewithal to know what they want to be when they grow up. I, I really struggle with putting pressure on kids to answer that question in my own children too. But I remember through my path of finding kind of my passion, my purpose, it was business that I got exposed to luckily through a school program in high school where you got to run the school store and you got to compete in a marketing competition. And it was really fun to compete at a state and national level on something. Wait, like wait, that. wait, wait, were, were you in DECA? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did DECA one year. <laughs> awesome. 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 I don't remember what the acronym even stands for, but that's distributive that's, education clubs of America. I think ah, that's about really right. That sounds, that's kind of, I had, I had the first half of the acronym in my head. So that's great. How fun is that? Yeah, no great opportunities to learn business and marketing. And, you know, I borrowed all my dad's ties and uh, four of his shirts. And I went off to, you know, my state capital to create a storefront 
<laughs> selling ties. That's awesome. <laughs> we wrote a 30, I wrote a 30 page market research manual. <laughs> and this was before sophisticated computer programs. So I made graphs and like copied and pasted them like actually into these papers. Amazing. I still have it. I still have the trophy until it fell apart. <laughs> it was in my basement as <laughs> an honorary a salute to DECA. But it, what's really funny about that full circle, much like I'll meet occasionally people like yourself that have participated in the program. Uh, my stepdaughter is now doing it uh, as a senior. And so I got to take her to competition last year and coach her on it. Like the four piece of marketing are these. <laughs> it was really fun to see that go full circle. So it's important as, as children that we have experiences, windows into the world, right? Of, of what this could look like and what this would actually be like before doing it for a living. So I always thought, okay, marketing is what I want to do. And I studied in undergrad. I studied, I got my MBA in marketing, which is really funny. Now I don't, I don't technically do anything with my education in marketing, but having a small business of my own, I love the marketing piece of it. So I'm really fortunate. I have that, those threads to pull from and that expertise that started in the, the classroom with the good old DECA. <laughs> when did you think about moving to your own business? I mean, you sort of got you know, ingrained in corporate America, a lot of people get stuck there with the golden handcuffs because it's like, it works well and they don't have time to do what they're really passionate about. But on the other hand, they're making money. It's like this catch 22, but you started to imagine a, a different world for yourself. And then how soon after that did you actually make that leap? Yeah. 12 years. I, I say I served in, in corporate America for 12 years, <laughs> served my time. And, and I say that jokingly because I had great experiences. I, I got to be a people leader for almost that whole time, which is super helpful and something I draw on those experiences every day in my inclusive leadership work. I do not with clients, but it took a while. Um, there's never a good time, I think, to pivot, to start your own thing. At the time, I was the primary breadwinner in my family. Um, my daughter was one year old. You know, that is not a good time to start a business. <laughs> But you have to seize the opportunities that get put in front of you. And I was in consulting at the time, had a client that had an opportunity to do women's leadership development work as a facilitator. And I thought, hmm, this would be really fun. And like, by the way, you're going to be a contractor for us. So I thought, oh, so that means I have to start my own business. I, I didn't think that was something I was going to do, but I really want to do this. And that's what I have to do to do this. I'll take the leap, even though the timing's really not right. So I'm so fortunate six years ago, I made that conscious decision. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to give myself a certain period of time to see if this works or not. I'm going to be super scrappy. Uh, so you don't even want to see the website and the branding and the name I had for my business six years ago. It's embarrassing to look back at, but it, it was a start and you just have to do. And, and that's what I've learned in the entrepreneurship world. And much like we've experienced all the adversity we've experienced over the last year, you got to be nimble. You got to be scrappy. You got to flex to what people want and listen, listen to people, like really listen to what they're looking for and what their problems are and how you can be helpful in solving them. And over that six year journey, you know, I started with women as a white woman. I was like, well, I, that's really the only thing I have to offer, you know, when you think about diversity. And then I started seeing these diversity inclusion officers and parts of companies and these statements and great things that were happening with bigger companies that have now immersed in all of corporate America. 
I'm like, I want to get on a mat. And it was really through studying allyship and how to be an ally for others that I found my, I really think my true calling, like this work is so important in the year that we've experienced with diversity and inclusion and Black Lives Matter. And it's just so important that everyone feels psychologically safe at work and people don't know how to do that. Uh, so that's, it's, it's been a fun journey and it's always changing and always evolving, which makes it fun. It sounds like an amazing journey and that you sort of um, appeared at the moment where all that was really coming to the forefront. Those conversations really started to light up across not just corporate America, but like I feel like in the general conversation that people were having, um, you know, before we hit record, I remarked in the fact that I've been speaking about belonging um, for a very long time in, in the context of networking and uh, it was sort of how I thought about the diversity and inclusion piece of the work that I was doing. And that in the last year, I'm now seeing that belonging is now listed, you know, amongst the, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, and you can recalibrate that to spell, I guess, different things. Um, so it's just really, it, it's really great. And I, I really liked your emphasis on allyship. I was, you know, looking at your books and I was thinking, oh, we need more like that because I my experience. So I'm, I'm an out trans guy. And so my sort of connection into the world of diversity is through that lens. And I've always thought that it's the allyship so fraught that um, we need allies, but the moment an ally misspeaks or missteps, they get shut down. And then they're like, don't want to risk it ever happening again. So they back away. And, you know, we, we need people who are accomplices and it's hard to get an accomplice if they aren't even comfortable being an ally. So true. So true. And I, I think we can learn a lot from the lessons in the LGBTQ plus space about how to be an ally. Um, really straight people coming into the conversation, cisgender people coming into the conversation. So many lessons learned and how much social change was able to happen. Exceptions, there's still not one of them to be, obviously, but over the last 20 years, wow. I mean, to see that level of progress is something to take note of. We're not seeing that level of progress in the race and gender spaces. So it, it, and I think to your point too, Robbie, I've really struggled with the word to use over the years. I've done tons of research on this and the word ally three, four years ago, when I used that to describe men as male allies um, to women was overwhelmingly the favorite, but the, the, most popular response was, we don't need to call these people anything at all. <laughs> I thought, well, if there were more of them, sure. <laughs> but unfortunately, there aren't as many allies out there, let alone the accomplices. And there is, I think, a kind of a tug and pull about what do we call people? How do we get people just to step in as an ally and be there? How to be an active ally, not a performative ally that just kind of does the reading and listens to the podcast and hides behind the scenes. We need people's voices and especially people that are in the majority group, the people that have power, that have privilege. Speaking up for others is a big deal and you're going to make mistakes along the way. I said, if you're, if you're waiting for a perfect ally, you will wait forever. And being <laughs> yeah. an ally, you don't have to have a rescue cape. You don't have to have the magic bullet. Honestly, it goes back to listening. It goes back to being curious, to being empathetic, core things that we've been talking about for connection and forming connections with people. You have to get to know people on a deeper level. And unfortunately, the rhetoric in corporate America has been to keep that, that those personal pieces of ourselves hidden. And that's, it's not right. It's never been helpful. Uh, and certainly for allyship to go beyond that, to a, being an accomplice, we have to bring our full, full selves to the conversation. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, it, it, it's like nine things I want to say to you right now, because I'm thinking about how the only the people who are not in the majority don't get a, to bring their full selves to work. Like no one tells the majority to leave that at home. <laughs> so, so like those conversations are happening around the water cooler, which is now no longer a water cooler. It's a, a zoom screen, <laughs> but you know, same thing. I, I going back to what you said about listening um, and how you would develop that skill as you were like shifting into entrepreneurship. And you, you know, I think it's, I want to underscore this because a, a lot of folks listening are very entrepreneurial and, or have their own businesses. And I know that there's sort of this, like, I call it expert syndrome where people are very aware of a problem and they have a very clear solution. So they want to bring that solution to the market and they haven't done enough listening. And so they're launch flops <laughs> and, um, you know, it's such trial and error to do this right. And I think, you know, now that everything has shifted and changed in 2020, it's even more critical that we get good at that, that skill. But it sounds like early on, you were able to tune in. I mean, you had this one client, <laughs> you launched with a client um, and, a, and a fairly, it sounds like a fairly narrow compared to what you're doing today, understanding of what your gift to the world was. How did you, how did you start to hear the expansive op opportunity and how did you get over the limitations in your own mind about you being the person to serve in that way? Yeah. I, I like to just kind of keep your ear to the ground and listen to what people are talking about. Right. And it's always evolving and changing. So six years ago, you know, talking about women's leadership was kind of a safe thing to do. And when I got curious was when I started going to these women's leadership conferences and speaking and training, I would look around the room and it was always just white women. And I thought, wow, like this, where is everyone else? <laughs> no, you know, women of color weren't there. Men weren't there I, to what I could tell people, members of the LGBTQ plus community weren't there. Like what's going on? We're just talking to each other. Like, how's that going to solve any problem? So I get curious. And whenever I get curious, I talk with people that are experts <laughs> at things. So to your point, I, I think the expert syndrome, we think everyone knows what we know sometimes and people don't, they don't know what you know. And I don't know what other people know. So I have to ask questions. And so I put together a wish list of interviewees. And this was one thing that I, I think having the uh, tenacity, just, I didn't care if people said no to me, like, I'm going to ask the big names. And one, one specific story I'll share with your listeners is I reached out to Adam Grant. So he is a well-known author, a really incredible human being. And he talks a lot about giving. So I was like, well, he's talking about giving. I'm going to ask if he can help me with something, not to be transactional, but really because I know it's aligned with his purpose too, about diversity. And um, at, the, at the time it was women and allies. I saw him as an ally and I emailed him. I like crossed my fingers, took a deep breath. And I was like, okay, over. And two days later, he emailed me back and he said, Hey, I'm kind of busy right now. Like, yep, I get it. Right. But here's five people you should talk to. And you can mention, I sent them your way. And all those five people responded to my note. Adam Grant recommended I connect with you. And all of them said yes to an interview. And it was really through that, that I was able to get a broader understanding of allyship so it's, it's just reminding yourself along the way, I found that I don't know everything, that things change and that's okay. And I've got to stay curious about where things are going. This is such a good example. The story you just shared, 
All right, so much richness to this. I want to, I want to, I want to pull it apart a little bit for folks who are listening in, so you can think about how you can apply this to your own life. So first, Julie noticed the room and the lack of diversity in the room, and saw it and named it as a problem, and thought, I need to learn more about this. And then, when you thought about Adam Grant, you didn't immediately dismiss it by deciding he's too busy. You took a deep breath, <laughs> you sent off the note, and he was gracious enough to acknowledge your note and pass along five amazing contacts who you then took a deep breath and reached out to. <laughs> and then they scheduled a call. And like, it's so funny because it, it sounds, I mean, uh, utterly basic, but I have to tell you, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who skip these steps. They dream up in their, you know, little cave <laughs> in their basement, um, a solution and create a whole program and brand it and create a website, a landing page, you know, like logo, and no one cares. <laughs> and they're like, who are you? Why is this important? So that listening tour, whether you want a listening tour or it's research calls or whatever, you know, coaching calls or informational interviews, whatever it is, those are so key. And think about the, like you built those relationships and that credibility as being a person who cares. Like they now know you. That, that's, that must have been a real change of who you had access to from that point forward. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing, taking one risk, like I did with Adam. I'm like, well, what's the harm in taking another risk? Who else could I ask? And I'll, I'll tell you two other allies I found along the way, um, two men called Broad Johnson and David Smith. Uh, they just wrote a book called The Good Guys, which I, every chance I get to tell people like promo, it's a really good book. Um, I had a chance to meet them too, virtually, of course, uh, but talk with them about their book. And it was because I took a chance and reached out and just thought, what's the worst that could happen? They say no. And at the time I was talking about allyship, they were talking about mentorship for women. And so we've kind of traded notes over the years and yeah, they're, they're big name people. Like they just published a book with Harvard business review and they're on stages with Sheryl Sandberg and things like that. So I wasn't intimidated by that though. I thought, well, these are people that have a similar message. They're not my competition. We need all voices talking about this. And what if we help each other? And I'll tell you, anytime I have a challenge in my business, I can reach out to them. And within 24 hours, they have a response to me. And that is invaluable to have people like that at that level um, with that insight and those connections. And when I was wrestling with my latest book, Lead Like an Ally, I needed to have kind of a foreword and I, I didn't really know who to ask. I thought, well, Brad and Dave are completely obvious choices. And they were at the time writing their book. So they were busy, right? But they graciously again said yes. And they just said yes. And it'll have to be in a couple months when we're done with our manuscript. And they came through. And so I think these, these chances we take, these um, connections that we make, they have this snowball effect that you're not even aware of happening in the moment, but it's in reflecting in a conversation like this. It's like, oh, this is how these pieces of the puzzle all fit together. Well, and a couple of things that you did there is uh, you didn't spring on them the request when you only had three days. You gave them several months notice so you built it in early enough. You had developed a relationship by that point where that ask, which is a fairly big ask, wasn't uh, going to be dismissed because they were like, who's this? Like you've been helping them. It had become a, it had become a, like truly a relationship. It wasn't just you always calling on them to get answers. They were calling on you to get answers too. And like you were being responsive just as much as they were being responsive. Um, so it's, it's the way things are supposed to work. But I feel like a lot of people sort of don't 
do that, the investing in their network along the way. Um, Jordan Harbinger was on the show. I mean, uh, now it's probably a couple of years ago. And, you know, he, he, in that conversation, we started talking about your network being an investment, sort of like insurance. So you don't buy insurance hoping to use it. You, you know, you actually hope you'll never, you pay monthly, but you'd hope you'll never have to use this insurance. And it's similar, like you sort of invest in your network each month. And it sounds like you're doing those little, you know, those, those little pieces along the way. And when you needed something, which was a fairly big ask, you got it. Um, and it doesn't seem strange in retrospect that they said yes, but you also did not think it was a sure thing. And, you know, it was sort of like, there's a lot about you getting out of your own way to make the request. Like there's, that's something true to you though. Like, where do you think that comes from? Because there is no sure thing. And a lot of, a lot of times you ask and there's a no or not right now. And people like interpret all that as like, I should never have asked, but you seem to be beyond that. Like, why do you think that thick skin? I mean, is this part of the work you've been doing? You know, it's interesting as, um, so I'm going to loop back to a question you asked me earlier to answer this one, uh, as thinking about myself as a child. So <laughs> I was not a good public speaker. I want to say freshman speech class was a disaster. They actually called me squeaker because my voice squeaked when I talked. Yeah. That's traumatizing as a 15 year old. <laughs> so when I started my own speaking business, people are like, what, what? Um, are you sure you want to do that, Julie? Like, I don't know if that's the best use of your time, (laughs) but what gets me through every chance I take and reaching out to people like this and doing the hard things is this message is so important, right? It's not about me. I am the vehicle for the message. And when you are dialed into your purpose and connected to it and you see it everywhere, I mean, I can't watch a movie now. (laughs) just enjoy it. I've got to dissect the characters and gender representation and who's getting more, you know, action, all of that. But it's because it's core to who I am. And I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, internalizing that, manifesting that in the world and building a business to support it. So it's who I am consistently. There's no on and off switch. And then I can then the hard things that come with being who I am and getting the message out, right? Saying, making it about the message, not about me. Well, that's easy. It's this message is important. We need more women in, in leadership. We need more people of color. You know, we need inclusiveness for all people. Oh, okay. Well, I can say that. I can ask for that, right? What's the worst that could happen? And I think for listeners, if you know who you are and who you're not, right? You're going to be, there are things you're going to be and things you're not going to be. But if you're really dialed into that and it's core, it's really core to who you've always been, like my eight-year-old self, then it, then it's not so hard. Then it should be effortless. Of course, there's gonna be hard days. Of course, there's gonna be hard things that happen and hard asks you have to make that I have to do, but it doesn't feel hard when it's a part of the message instead of about me. My background's fundraising. I I don't know if you know this. My background is in, in nonprofit and fundraising, and I taught fundraising for quite a bit. And uh, getting the, t- the title of the talk was Getting Past the Fear of the Ask, which is appropriate as an entrepreneur. I, I still find myself calling on this material. And there's a phrase that you learn in fundraising, kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk. And I think this is a hard thing for entrepreneurs because they feel like they are the cause. And I'm like, no, it's not you. Like, it's not you. It's about the work, but the mission, it's about the purpose, you know, and it seems like you have really dialed into that part. And so even when things are hard, you're like, 
but if I don't get myself out of the way, like this won't happen. Like this opportunity will never happen. Like, you know, the whole Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, like all the shots you don't take, <laughs> you miss. <laughs> it's like, okay, that makes sense actually logically. But I think emotionally people have a hard time with this, but clearly for you, this is working. And I also think like, given that you help people with their career pivots, helping, you know, the fact that you've so clearly identified yourself along this like clear purpose, it shows what that means to other people. Like this is what they all be working on too, is like dialing into that for them would also change what level risk they're willing to take in order to achieve that. Well, and too, I mean, to your point, I love getting yourself out of the way. It, it, you know, connecting emotionally, like humans, we make decisions based on emotion. We justify them rationally. So you've got to bring some emotion into conversations when you're connecting with people. You've got to make it about something bigger and finding the, that purpose, that passion. A lot of times when I speak and train inside organizations, that's what people say. Like they remember wow, Julie, you're so passionate about this. Like I can tell you're in the zone with this, or this is just, you know, it's, it's who you are, right? It exudes. It just, people are good at reading that energy from other people. And so you can't fake that, <laughs> right? And it, it, it makes it easier on me too, because I mean, the content's the content, like other DEI people could do the content I do if they wanted to, honestly, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a secret sauce but it's the passion, right? It's the emotion that you bring to it and that connection you form with people that makes you memorable. That's what we remember. We remember the stories. We remember the passion um, from our experiences with people. That's what gets us to connect. And um, I'm thankful. I am thankful for that, finding that early in my career. I work with a lot of people that yeah, pivots like 50s, 60s, you know, they've been in the trenches for way more than the 12 years I served. And I just know how much my energy was waning. And that's the one thing I offer to people that are kind of wrestling with this. What's next moment? Like so many people are within a world of uncertainty and turmoil is really think about, you know, what got you excited as a kid? Like what, what did, like, I mean, there were things that are core to who you are that have always been there. Uh, it's kind of like reading tarot cards when I work with clients and their life history. Like, oh, pull that thread. Like what? Let's talk more about that experience because it, it's probably shown up for you in several different ways. And it's oftentimes what your friends and family recognize you for, what's happened on past performance reviews. There's all sorts of clues out there, but really thinking about those passion areas. Um, and, and to your point earlier about thinking, well, everyone's excited about that. No, they may not be, and they may not be uniquely suited to talk about those things. <laughs> so everyone's got kind of a unique calling. You just have to, you have to pay attention to it. And that, that, that's the hard part, I think. Yeah. It's hard to listen to that and, and, and to believe in it. And I think this is where even coaches need coaches to like stay true to their calling and all that, which, which I want to really, I want to sort of dig a little bit into this piece around, around your network, because it's clear just from like what you've described in these few stories that you have been thoughtfully developing a network. And so I'm kind of curious about how you sustain and nurture, not, okay, so there's, sort of, there's the inner circle of people, you know, that you're going to stay in touch with one way or another. But then I always curious how people stay in touch with sort of the second and third layers or tiers out from that. Like this could be people you see once a year at a conference or, um, maybe someone you worked with five years ago, but you're not currently have a reason to work with them. But these are people you liked. I guess I want to say broadly, you enjoy each other, even though you don't have a reason to talk every day. How do you think about, you know, those connections? Are there any habits or philosophies or practices that help you 
stay kind of a little more top of mind than not? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of putting process to things. And as somebody that was a logistics also major in college, the process of things. Now being an entrepreneur, I have to have process to keep me reined in because I have all sorts of ideas. But if I don't put it into a process, it's not going to happen. And so even with networking, having a process, uh, I have a file of strategic partners, right? But people that we could have just shared a blog post of each other's, or we could have been on each other's podcasts, much like yourself, Robbie, you would fit into that category. Somebody I can share content with somebody that is in, in similar interests and could collaborate in a, in a meaningful way. And that's through all sorts of different activities. So I often review that and just kind of think, okay, um, I've got a podcast season coming out. Could I ask them to be on that? Um, what would be something that would be meaningful for them that I could share with them, like a new tool. So there's this kind of like give and take that we have where we want to do things that are mutually beneficial and have a proactive ask around that. And so I review that often. That's one of the processes I've been happy to have. And Feature them on my website. I mean, that that's that's good for both of us for website traffic, but finding those meaningful connection points. And then I'd say too, I mean, LinkedIn uh, has been a resource for me since day one, you know, six years ago before LinkedIn was a thing. Now, of course, there's a ton of traffic on that messages, but I started out with a goal to get to 10,000 followers. Uh, this was three, four years ago. I set that as a business goal for the year and I, I hit it by like July that year by being really intentional every day, going through and finding new connections and reaching out to people in a meaningful way, not in a salesy kind of way. (laughs) There's a big difference there. And now I have 27,000 followers, I think on LinkedIn. And that's through intention. That's through consistency. That's through reviewing anybody I meet with. I always make a connection so that we can continue to follow each other that way. And I post daily there. That's a huge investment of my time. I map out content every single day. I go through and think about what, what's relevant. What can I be sharing? An article, a video, a podcast episode, whatever it is. Talk about things like this, like us working together and talking about this conversation today. But something that brings value to people. It's not about me self-promoting. I mean, sometimes I, I'm like, oh, that was a little self-promoting. But sometimes I have to do that as a business owner. But most of the time, it's like, what content can I bring to you to help you and help you on your journey? And that's where people think of you six months later. Oh, Julie talks about this. I need to talk to her when the need comes up. So less about trying to get somebody to do something you don't want to do now, but when they're ready, you're top of mind. All right. Question very specifically before I dive into questions I have about LinkedIn and what you're doing and share my own sort of journey on that. This list that you have is like, you said you kind of have people in a folder. How many people about are in there and, and what's your process for adding them? Yeah, I probably have like 500 right now. Um, and that was something that started uh, in the COVID, dark days of COVID when my speaking business went out the window. Like, okay, we need to get serious about like a CRM and tracking people you've talked to. So it took some time to initially set up. But now monthly, I add in, you know, the 20 or so people I talk to each month, I add them into the file. I, you know, kind of create a custom code who they are and how frequently I might contact them. And then um, monthly, I kind of review and think about who haven't I reached out to in a while and who might benefit from that. So that process is simple. It's a spreadsheet. I didn't end up going with a fancy CRM system. It's just a spreadsheet that I can keep track of. It's funny when I was launching my podcast, you know, four plus years ago, um, I had signed up for Contactually 
And that's a CRM that has these buckets. And each time you, you create a bucket, you can decide how much time you want to lapse the most, you know, between contact points, which I thought was just genius. Of course, I, I ended up putting way too many things and people in, and then became just a, a mess. Um, and they shifted towards serving more real estate folks, but for like a year and a half, two years, like that was like my attempt at that. But what you're describing, it's like, in some ways, like, keep it simple. Like, you know, like is, I always say, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm agnostic about what tools you use as long as you use them. <laughs> so you know, if, if, a, if a stack of business cards or index cards would work, like use that. But what you're saying is being intentional about staying in touch with a certain group of people based on a certain parameter. Like these, the reason they're even in this group is because of X and then flipping through them on a regular enough basis to be jogging your memory. And that that's, that's you being outbound. But it also sounds like your consistency in LinkedIn is another like effort to be outbound, but not as one-to-one, but more one-to-many. And I, about a month or a month and a half ago now, I can't remember now, and by the time this airs, it's done three months, but I have been doing um, five posts a week in the morning with original content and then five afternoon posts where I share somebody in my network. And um, this has been like a, cons- this, a decision about consistency. And I had to, and we talked about this before we started recording, but like I reinvented myself. And so if I hadn't done that, there's, there's no way my network would know and refer me for what I do today. Um, you know, what I did in the past is still relevant and I still have that expertise, but like it has to manifest in this current you know, world. And now people refer me and they often say like months later, oh, Robbie, I saw your thing a while ago. I think this is what you're doing. My colleague needs some help. Let me make the referral. And, you know, it's enough for me to then have a conversation that leads to like a sale. And it's always amazing how I don't have to do all the like ex- explanation of benefit of like who I, this referral is so powerful um, in that way. So LinkedIn, I wanted to sort of anyone listening, like create your own plan. It does take some time and effort, but with some advanced planning, like that content mapping that you're describing, you know, it's not, it's not like day up, you're like staring at a piece of paper going like, what am I going to do today? I think that would be super stressful for me. Um, but it's not, yeah, like that's kudos to you. And I wanted to sort of say more of us need to be doing that. Cause it's, it's a, it's a powerful asset, our network, and we need to let them all know what we do. Um, so here's my wrap up question. <laughs> I, I, my favorite question actually, it's like, you know, Julie, you and I did connect on your podcast and thank you for having me on that. And now here we are doing this. And I know we're going to find more ways to cross paths on and off LinkedIn. And let's say it's a year from now. And I say, wow, Julie, it's been a year since we had that conversation. You know, what have you know, what have you accomplished? What's been so amazing? I want to know what are we going to be celebrating at the end of this year? Like, what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, I love that question. It's, it prompts some visualization, which we know uh, our chances of success go much further up when we have a vision of what that looks like. Um, for me, and when, Robbie, when you were on um, our Inclusion School podcast, which I co-host with a woman named Simone Morris, one of the things that's been big for me this year is getting more passionate about helping kids have conversations about diversity and inclusion. I'm getting a little bored in the adult world, (laughs) fixing problems that started way earlier (laughs) in your childhood. So that's been a big thing this year. And and what I want to do next year, I just wrote the first draft of a children's book called Little Allies. And it's about little kids with different 
um, genders, different um, sexual orientations, you know, all sorts of different facets of diversity coming together. And there's a character, Allie, who's the ally, <laughs> kind of comes in and speaks up and helps uh, in the situation and teaching kids how to have those hard conversations because they're happening on the playgrounds. They're happening in the classroom now uh, with my six-year-old. And we got to get better at this. Uh, when I think about the world for these kids, it's got to be better. I, I hope they're not having this tired conversation about why diversity matters. <laughs> Certainly, there'll be um, they're going to be way more diverse by representation. So I hope that's the case. But that's that's my mission for next year to have little allies on my my own children's bookshelf. Which you and I talked about diversifying our children's bookshelf. That's been a big goal of mine this year for my kids uh, to see different types of people, all sorts of different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives. So that's something I'm excited to chime in on for, for 2021. I can't wait to celebrate that with you and buy a copy for me and all my kids, like friends. That sounds awesome. We need more books like that. Something we are seeking out as a family that really values those diverse perspectives and who are raising two white kids who by all intents are male and one very clearly identifies as such and like that's the world in which they will be you know be seen and raised in and i'm like i want them to value and and, and appreciate the world in a, in a larger way so those kind of books really do help um so i will be part of that launch team count me in i'm saying it publicly here. yay see how we just formed a connection you see how asking that question and being curious leads to something where we can help each other because i know that's something you're really passionate about too yeah i am it's so great so i'd love to know before we wrap up how can people find you and follow your work Ah, so I have everything on my website next, nextpivotpoint.com. And that's actually my social handle for Twitter, Instagram, uh, and uh, Facebook as well. So next pivot point. And I post daily on LinkedIn. So check me out there. That's the best place to follow me. Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. And I welcome anybody to send me a note if you liked this and have other questions or you have your own stories or things you're working through. Uh, Julie at nextpivotpoint.com is my email address as well. Fantastic. We have all those links in the show notes, including a link to your TEDx talk. What if through claiming our true gender, we claim our true strength? Awesome talk and links to all your books on Amazon. You'll find all of that again at ontheschmooze.com. Julie, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Julie. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 229. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 225 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Now, nearly 12 years after joining Goodreads, I'm finally an active member. Are you too? Connect with me and we'll encourage each other to keep up our reading habits. You can reach out and share your reading recommendations. My preferred genre is business books by authors like Dory Clark, Mike Michalowicz, David Burkis, Daniel Pink, John Acuff, and the Chip and Dan Heath, the Heath brothers. If you enjoyed this episode with Julie, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. 
I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.